0: So we've all gone through the first day of the retreat together. Restless, sleepy, up and down, all those things that first days of retreats have. One of the things that I like about being on retreat is that there's no email, (laughs) and there's no regular mail, and there's no faxes, And there's no voicemail. A poem from Lewis Jenkins. At first, he refused to deliver junk mail because it was stupid, all those deodorant ads, money-making ideas, and contests. Then he began to doubt the importance of the other mail he carried. He began to select first-class mail randomly for non-delivery, After he had finished his mail route each day, he would return home with his handful of letters and put them in the attic. He didn't open them and never looked at them again. It was as if he were an agent of fate, capricious and blind. In the several years before he was caught, friends vanished, certain engagements were broken, marriages failed, business deals fell through. Toward the end he became more and more bold, deleting houses, then whole blocks from his route. He began to feel he'd been born in the wrong era. If only he could have been a pony express rider galloping into some prairie town with an empty bag, or the first runner from ancient Marathon collapsing in the streets of Athens, gasping, No news. (laughs) Consider yourself fortunate, You've had a day of no news. Consider yourself unfortunate. You've had a day of your own body and mind. One of the preoccupations of human beings over the centuries has been to find in this complicated world of human experience that which is sacred or transcendent or timeless that takes us beyond the small sense of self and the small world in which we live and opens us up to something that is vast, universal. And as we undertake this retreat, we join with all these other cultures in this journey of the elder or of the wise women, wise men, of the yogi, or the shaman, or the healer. And although it takes many forms throughout the world, it is always the same. It is a journey from the mundane world, where we live lost on automatic pilot, unconscious in some ways, to discover that which is holy and sacred, and then to return with that or integrate that understanding of the holy and the sacred into our life. And the word holy is the same word as whole, not cut off, not separate from the world, but wise in the midst of all its realms. So here we are on this retreat, The beautiful snow that fell today, walking in the woods, sitting in silence, participating in this same great journey. There are a number of stages or elements of this universal journey. Tonight I'll speak of six of them. The first stage in this journey of discovery is this stage of renunciation. It's not a very popular word in Western culture. But another word for it is disenchantment. That it's not a, this is not a put down of our ordinary life, but rather an awakening in the midst of it, even if we have a fine ordinary life. A moment that says there must be more there must be more than just going through the rhythm of one's day or one's work or one's family or one's creative projects there must be something more than this and for some it's a sense of a deep possibility of living with greater compassion on this earth and greater freedom that we know somehow that's possible for others, it's looking around and seeing the level of consumerism and desireism in our culture, the kind of ambition that Joseph Campbell spoke of, climbing the ladder only to discover it was against the wrong wall, the level of addiction, of grasping that drives a kind of modern consumer society so that we're busy all the time getting and having and being better than, and not really paying attention to our hearts. And there's a moment of remembering, is this really what I want? Or for some, it's that underlying sadness in the culture, even when we're in a blessed situation, of knowing that while we're in a blessed situation, there's still the Palestinians and the Israelis and there's still the people of Kosovo or Rwanda or Cambodia. And knowing that even when there's some success in change of regimes from despotism to democracy or when one revolution succeeds, as often as not the new government puts all the old people in jail and commits a whole new set of terrible things against its own populace. Knowing that there's hunger when we have grain elevators full of food. Feeling the level of racism and prejudice and tribalism, us and them, and the wars and injustice that it creates for children and grown-ups alike. And we carry those with us, inside us. Those truths. All African gorillas. The giant sable antelope. All species of jaguar. The giant armadillo. Three species of kangaroo and five of leopard. Thirteen species of monkeys. All orangutans. All species of rhinoceros, eight of whale, six of wolf, seven of gazelle. The Asian lions, 20 species of pheasant, 15 of turtles, 12 of crocodiles. In that much time, they might disappear. And you see pictures of them and tell your grandchildren, yes, that's what a rhinoceros looked like. We carry all of this. And so this renunciation is like a wake-up call inside. To say this life, with its beauty and its pain, its pleasure and its suffering, it's really very tentative. It must be that there's some meaning, some possibility of awakening in the midst of it. Or maybe it is that we become aware of the awesome power of the great elements. The storm, hurricane, Mitch, that did more damage than any other natural disaster ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere. One storm. Millions of people. We live, in a way, at the mercy of, elephants, of elements that change. Um, the Buddha put it this way, He said, karma can change as quickly as the swish of a horse's tail. Praise and blame and rich and poor and pain and pleasure and gain and loss. Death is our eternal companion, says Don Juan. It's always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you and it always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death an immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or you just catch the feeling that your companion is there watching you so somehow in the heart in the mind we sense or hear or know That there must be some other way. Something that's possible as humans beside the common busyness that we know. The beginning of this is not so much to set out in quest of something, but the opposite. To not do. Just to stop. To listen to the stars, to the cosmos, to the forest, to our own hearts. Just to begin to listen, what is this? You know the story of Bill Moyers when he was the press secretary for Lyndon Johnson after Kennedy's death. And one day, because Bill Moyers is also a minister, he was saying grace at the lunch table, and from the other end of the table, President Johnson Called down and said, Speak up, Bill. I can't hear a damn thing. And Bill replied, I wasn't addressing you, Mr. President. There's some way in which the critical step, which we've begun today, is not speaking at all, but listening from the inside. And sometimes it's lonely. It touches that solitude of the heart. But that brings us deeper to what what we can discover is true. Don Jose Rios, at 106 years old, the old Huichol shaman, said, I've practiced my apprenticeship for 84 years. Many times have I gone to the mountains alone. Yes, I've endured much suffering in my life. Yet to hear the voices of the gods, you must do this. For it is not I who can teach you the ways of the gods. The gods are heard only alone, only in silence. So it's this listening, a renunciation, a turning from the world, even that's beautiful and successful, knowing there must be more. I remember hearing Carlos Castaneda talk about this. He came to, he very rarely spoke publicly, but some friends of mine had a special evening with him a couple or a few years ago in her living room in San Francisco. And there was Castaneda, and then there was a collection of us. It was Ramdas and Jerry Brown and Fritjof Capra and um, Francis Vaughan and Angelus Arian and... uh, Oh, a few other, just about everybody but Bob Dylan was there, right? <laughs> and Carlos was really like the best storyteller I ever heard. You know, Fritchoff he said, do you have any questions? Fritchoff raised his hand and said, did you really jump off that cliff? You know, He then he told the whole story over again. Of course I did, and there I was. And then back in Los Angeles, I raised my hand. What does a uh, shaman do with $15 million from his book sales? He said he... He uses it wisely. <laughs> but anyway, he was talking about Don Juan teaching him. And he said, you have to look at yourself really honestly. You have to look and see what is the, the chief difficulties that you entangle yourself into. Like you, Carlos, what do you see are your great faults? And Carlos said, I thought about it for a while, sitting there with Don Juan. And he said, um, to Don Juan, he said, well... I'm a bit too talkative and maybe a little bit proud. And Don Juan, he said, Don Juan just shook his head and looked back at him and said, You haven't even begun. How about if you start with short and homely? (laughs) 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 Poor Carlos, yet again. But there's a kind of truth that we need to face when we begin, this renunciation or disenchantment, to say, all right, there are things that we've done and been good at and caught up with and benefited others, but there must be something deeper. And then from this stillness, this willing to listen and turn then the next stage or part of the journey is a sacred question. Each of us must find our own sacred question. For some, it might be the question of suffering. What to do with the suffering of the world. For some, it might be identity. Who am I? What was I born to be? What is this? You know, at one three-month retreat that we taught here, this Korean Zen master Kusan came. Nine Mountains Monastery. He sat up here at the end of the three-month retreat, and looked out, and heard about the practice people feeling their breath and Naming and acknowledging the different states of body and mind. And he said, you know, this practice you do no good. <laughs> Three months they'd been sitting there doing. He said, you won't get enlightened from this. No good. People's heart sank, you know. And then he said, there's only one practice. And he banged a stick on the floor. What is this? What is this? This is the practice. So that's a sacred quest. Or maybe it's the question of, how can I love well? What would it mean to really love in this life? Or the question of freedom. For Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she talked about right at the end of World War II, going as a volunteer to work in what was then Poland in some of the concentration camps, survivors, She said, I went into this room and there were piles of children's clothing and little shoes and little messages scrawled on the wall to mommies and daddies of children who'd been killed. And I looked and I said, how can one human being do this to another? How could this be? She said, my whole life, that has been my question. How can I find some redemption to understand that? In India there's a song one hears the Hindu tradition the child in the womb sings let me remember who I am and then the first cry after birth oh dear I'm forgetting already so it's asking somehow what is this what does it mean to be free to love to heal the world because the world isn't going to be healed by more consumer goods or more energy or more oil. What would bring healing? A renunciation, a turning away from the unconscious way of living, a sacred question. The third part of this journey requires a vehicle, a discipline, a practice not just to follow our habit, but something that will really open us in a new way. And sometimes it's spontaneous, travel, childbirth, a near-death experience, and we get shaken out of the small sense of self. But most often in spiritual practice, to open beyond the shell of conditioning this small sense of self this identity that we hold, there needs to be some way of practice that takes us there. I mean, for us, it's sitting and walking and sitting and walking and going deeper and deeper. And I mean, it looks weird from the outside. You know how this place must look to the UPS guy when he comes up. The kids out where I live call it the Night of the Living Dead, right? <laughs> <laughs> But the shamans in Alaska used to go and spend 30 days in a little tiny igloo with no food or water waiting for a vision. Or the Native Americans in the, some of the western states. There's the sun dance, or the roof, four days and nights of drumming and dancing, or the rolling of a little stone around a big one over and over like the sun around the earth, as it seemed until a vision would come, or prayers and chanting, the temples in Banaras. Seven days and nights I went into a Krishna temple at the end of this period where people had danced around the altar of Krishna chanting for seven days and nights. Wow, you went in, there was no roof on this place. It was just light pouring in. It was fantastic. There has to be some way for us in which we stop following our habit, some simple way. And in a repeated willingness, come back again and again to a deeper and deeper connection with what actually is. Annie Lamott, the humorous writer of operating instructions and bird by bird, she says, I have a tape of a Tibetan nun singing a mantra of compassion over and over for an hour eight words over and over. And every line feels different, feels cared about and experienced as she is singing. You never once have the sense that she's glancing down at her watch thinking, Jesus Christ, it's only been 15 minutes. 45, 45 minutes later, she's still singing each line distinctly, word by word, until the last word is sung. Mostly things are not that simple and pure, with attention to each syllable as life sings itself. But that kind of attention is the prize. Gandhi spoke of it as blessed monotony. Jogim Trimpa called meditation manual labor. And it can be there in parenting, when your kids are sick and crying and you just have to do it over and over and care for them. It can be there in a whole lot of circumstances when we give ourselves to it so fully again and again that it demands that we get bigger that we let go of this small self and feel something greater so simple listen to Mother Teresa I never look at the masses as my responsibility I look at the individual I can only love one person at a time I can feed only one person at a time just one just one so you begin I begin I picked up one person maybe if I didn't pick up that one person I wouldn't have picked up 42,000 the whole work is only a drop in the ocean but if I didn't put the drop in the ocean would be one drop less same thing for you same thing in your family in your community, wherever you go, you just begin one, 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 one. breath, one step, each with attention. And traditionally, the tales of the lineage of the elders, this is Theravada, which means the this is the practice of the elders. From our lineage of the elders, they talk about bravery and courage of going out into the dark forest where there were tigers and wild animals and facing the storms and hot sun and rain and flies and all the insects and so forth. We don't have that so much. But we have doubt and loss and fear and pain and boredom and all those things that are difficult come to us as soon as we stop are right here with us. All those great and difficult forces. Only as a warrior, says Don Juan, can one withstand the path of knowledge. For a spiritual warrior, everything that comes is a challenge, while for an ordinary person, it's only a blessing or a curse. For a spiritual warrior, there are only challenges. And challenges cannot possibly be good or bad. Challenges are simply challenges. We breathe and come back to our breath and notice, is it long or short? Subtle? When it gets subtle, can we feel still that subtle life breath? A thousand times like that Tibetan nun coming back over and over, deepening, for a moment again, the sense of presence and the storms of our mind and the difficulties and the pains, they come and they wash over us and then again, another breath and another. It's like Gandhi said, I have only three enemies. My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the entire British Empire. My second enemy, far more difficult, is the Indian people. You would understand that if you have traveled in India. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. In this quality of discipline or practice, you could call it the practice of bravery, of extending the capacity of the heart. I think of being with this friend who was dying in the AIDS epidemic and we would just chant together and breathe together. Even when I couldn't be with him, I'd call him on the phone and I'd say, "All right, let me hear your breath and we'd just breathe for a while and we'd chant. To be that present. Or a friend who during the first bombing of Iraq and the second bombing of Iraq and again the third bombing with the first war, which lasted, as you know, for at least some weeks. Went and sat in the middle of the town square with a big sign that said, Make peace on earth. And people threw things at her, and she took her safu. People yelled at her. Some people cheered her on. and Others were really angry at her. And she simply went every day and sat there. As somebody, Wes Nisker, who's a fellow teacher and friend, said on a news broadcast that he does periodically in San Francisco, he said, Our poor president is being becoming impeached for making love, not war. <laughs> oh, I wasn't gonna talk about that. That's right. <laughs> There's a kind of bravery that's asked if we're to open. And it's the bravery, not of force, but the bravery to bring the greatness of our heart to this whole of our human life, whatever it happens to be. Martin Luther King, Jr., I love this passage. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. We will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win your freedom as well. Soul force, he calls it. That willingness to give ourselves to something greater over and over, and let it open us. Anything we do with that wholeheartedness becomes a joy. Think about it in your life, what you've done really wholeheartedly. So there's renunciation. Renunciation a disenchantment, a turning from the ordinary to seek something deeper. There's a sacred question that we each find in ourselves. And then there's the willingness to give ourselves to some discipline or practice, some vehicle for opening us beyond the small sense of self. And then what comes in the next stage is Mara anyone who undertakes a genuine practice as an artist or writer in meditation or marriage or parenting in a business enterprise or athletics, something that you give yourself to as a practice over and over Mara will come to visit. And Mara in the tradition of the elders is the name for the personification, for the God, the fellow who represents all the forces of difficulty and evil. It's inevitable. Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods. But watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on their anvil and fire up their forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold or my Hindu teacher. It's kind of amazing. The Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and Mara came in the form of temptation and difficulty and so forth. 2,500 and so many years ago as the story is told. You sit down here at IMS, halfway around the world, many centuries later, close your eyes, begin to meditate, and what happens? Mara appears. Fantastic. Faster than light, here we are again. Mara comes, in a thousand different forms. You know this poem from Kabir. He writes, Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning around. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe but I noticed one day how well woven was the cloth. So I bought some burlap. You know this poem from Kabir. He writes, Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning around. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day how well woven was the cloth. So I bought some burlap but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I work hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its links with the world, it still holds on to the next thing. So this is Mara. And you find it when you undertake a genuine practice, you hit all the resistances and the things that prevent this opening, the beliefs and the attachments. And sometimes Mara comes in the form of temptation, wanting to be comfortable. If only I could have this, the fantasy, the imagining, what's not, What's here is not good enough. There must be some other better way for me to do this, for the retreat. To happen a couple of years ago I was teaching a retreat and somebody had a lot of difficulty with their walking meditation and I tried to give them some instructions that might make it more alive interesting for them but it still didn't work they said "Do you have anything else I said sure there's a simple solution you have a lot of resistance to walking The way to really deepen it and find out what's going on is to stop sitting and do a whole day of just walking oh they moaned how about half a day (laughs) little bar getting there all right so i got this note dear jack long walking meditation all morning assignment completed thank you now i can meditate while moving i thought i might discover why i've been so resistant to it but no circumstances taught me something else instead i chose to walk in the annex walking room because it's small beautiful and usually quiet today however it was noisy as hell there was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could wearing little noisy boots well thought i surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends no such luck this madman pounded his way through an hour and a half non-stop except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried meta. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. <laughs> I stood there noting, hate, hate. Later I stood in the middle of the room and wept, tears, tears. Then I got to the point where I realized whatever problem he had was his, not mine. After that, I got quiet, and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed, and he paced and pounded, and pretty soon it was all the same to me. His noise, my breath, the movement of my body. After an hour and a half, he left. Then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I would have expected. (laughs) Mostly just different. Thank you. So you sit and Mara comes in all these ideas of what you want and how it should be. And that's just desire, just the thoughts, just the wanting mind, just the restlessness. Or maybe Mara comes in another form. Aggression, anger, doubt, fear. And again you see Mara and you experience it. As we go on now we're mostly working with the breath. But we'll be noting that. Oh, there's anger. Or there's longing. I remember, I like to tell this story, going with my teacher, Ajahn Chah, to a monastery on the Cambodian border. We were invited. We were in this car driven by a young man who was an insanely fast driver. We kept telling him to slow down, but going down about 80 kilometers of this one-and-a-half-lane dirt road that twisted through the mountains, with little cliffs on the side. And he wouldn't slow down much. And mostly the road was empty, so it was fine. He was just speeding around the curves. But once in a while there would be a logging truck, or a big bus, or a water buffalo, or someone on a bicycle. And you never knew when, and there was no way he could stop. And I got really frightened, and I was holding on, really following my breath and thinking, okay, I'm going to die a monk. I better center myself here. And Then I looked over at Ajahn Chah and I saw that he was holding on so much that his knuckles were white. And I found some comfort in that somehow. We were going to die together maybe. But we made it. We didn't crash into anything. And then he finally pulled into the courtyard of the temple. Before we got out of the car, it stopped quietly. and My teacher turned to me, And he said, scary ride, wasn't it? It was a lovely moment because he really was a person, Ajahn Chah, who didn't seem to be afraid of death and showed that in many ways in his life. So it wasn't that he was afraid of dying so much. He was simply acknowledging the way it was. That was a scary ride, as if he were to bow to it. This is fear and this is wanting and this is restlessness, and here's pain in the body, softening, being with it, allowing that too, that form of Mara to come, and finding our center, our peace in the midst of it. The Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and vowed to stay there with his eyes open and his heart open to see all that life would present and find a freedom in the midst of it. And each time we sit we sit under our own tree of enlightenment. We sit as if in the eye of the storm. George Washington Carver, again. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong because someday in life you will have been all of these. It's called shamanic equilibrium, the balance of the shaman in the midst of joys and sorrows. And we find that, but not until Mara comes. You don't really know. It doesn't take long. Mara comes pretty quickly. I mean, there's the story of Ramakrishna, one of the great sages in India and saints who prayed and practiced and devoted himself to spiritual life. And what he wanted more than anything was to have a vision of uh, the divine, of the holy. And for him, the divine was particularly the great mother, Ma, the great divine feminine. And one day, as Ramakrishna tells the story, he was sitting by the banks of the Ganges River in meditation and in this great kind of beseeching, may I open to that which is divine. And all of a sudden, a vision appeared. He opened his eyes, and out of the river came this incredible being, this beautiful woman, the goddess that creates all things. And she looked at him with eyes sparkling and hair dripping the water of the river, this huge form. And then she opened her body to him, and out of her body, from between her legs poured the birth of all life. Children and beings and plants and animals of all kinds, she was giving birth to the world. He was absolutely astonished and awe and delighted. And then she looked him in the eye and reached down and picked up a handful of babies and put them in her mouth and began to chew on them. And the blood ran down her lips and across her breast and she looked him in the eye, and then sank back down beneath the waves in the river Ganges. That was his vision. If you sit, you will encounter it all. Beauty, evil, joy and sorrow, praise and blame, it's all there. And it's a great task to sit and open ourselves as a Buddha to what this human life gives us. And in bringing awareness to it, to all of life, there comes a profound healing. The healing arises when we do not put anything out of our heart. When we sit, we see it in ourselves, our loneliness and grief, our fear, all the things that we've run from, the forces in us as in the world that create suffering, greed, hatred, delusion, prejudice, the pains in the body, the struggles in the heart. And what we're asked is to find a new way to touch and to hold all of that. from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche who says when you awaken your heart you find to your surprise that your heart is empty you find that you look into outer space you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for the awakened heart there's nothing there but tenderness you feel sore and soft and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is like pure raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this genuine heart tender heart that has the power, and only this that has the power, to heal the world. You know, in Tibetan Buddhist practice, one prays for difficulties and sufferings. May I be granted appropriate hardships so that the true heart of compassion can awaken in me. And through this practice and the willingness to be present and mindful and open, we learn an alchemical transformation to turn Mara, or lead, into gold through patience and openness and presence. We learn how to give ourselves to what arises and meet it with compassion. True prayer and love, says Thomas Merton, are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart is turned to stone. And in the real difficulties, we start to see that we don't control or own or possess anything. We see all the storms inwardly and outwardly and seek That place of freedom in the heart that can bow to it all and awaken in its midst. And if you see the tankas, the paintings of the Buddha seated under the tree of enlightenment being attacked by Mara with his host of armies of spears and arrows and flaming darts and all of the temptations, one of the most beautiful images as the buddha holding up his hand and there's a painting that shows the line from his heart of compassion to his fingertips and he touches every spear and arrow with compassion and it turns into flower petals and falls at his feet this is the last lesson only the love of this splendorous life can give freedom to a warrior spirit, says Don Juan. And this freedom is joy, efficiency, and abandon in the face of any odds. This is the last lesson, the transforming power of our own love and awareness. It is always left for the very last moment, for the moment of ultimate solitude, when a person faces their death and aloneness. Only then does it make sense. renunciation turning from the everyday world a sacred question a willingness to undertake a discipline or practice to deepen this opening the facing of hardship of Mara and from this comes transformation awakening in a moment a letting go a surrender an opening a dying a little. and expanding from the small sense of self again and again to touch something greater. And each of us has a sense of this possibility. It's not new to you. Something in you remembers. And it doesn't come through fighting or struggle, but through being, presence, through love. Somehow the love and the openness expands from the small sense of self to that vastness that is also who we are. You could call it nirvana, the end of struggle. Being at peace with oneself, with the earth, with birth and death. Seeing things as they are, the suchness of things, not mine or yours, but just as they are. Kalu Rinpoche says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand it, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all a stepping out of oneself all the ideas and identity you know it's like Nasruddin when he went into the bank the Sufi holy saint and fool to cash a check and they said could you please identify yourself and he pulled out of his pocket that small mirror and looked in it and said yep that's me all right We come with so many ideas of who we are, and it's possible to let go of those and open to a deep and great reality that is timeless. In a moment, and in this place of rest, we discover that what we've sought for so long is what we are. No confusion. As Suzuki Roshi said when he was dying of cancer, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. No confusion in it. Maybe everyone will suffer because of the physical pain, or agony, or the spiritual agony. That's just suffering, Buddha. Sun Buddha, moon Buddha, happy Buddha, sad Buddha. To bow to it all and rest in the midst. A peace, as Thomas Merton said, not of emotional resignation, but of the openness of heart that has seen everything without refutation or argument. And the Buddha looked out on the world, as the story is told, after seeing all this, and said, O house-builder, thou art seen at last, no longer shall you build this house of sorrow. The ridgepole is broken. The rafters are shattered. Freed am I. Unshakable is this deliverance of heart. And what he saw was all the ways that we create the separateness of self. And that absolute possibility that we can open beyond that. It happens to each of us. And wherever this takes place becomes a great temple. No matter where you are is the place for this awakening to happen. Just here, in this sitting, in this retreat. And then when we've seen, when we understand, when we've faced all these things in ourselves and come to that place of peace, We are no longer so much the seeker, but one who is at rest. And we come to the last stage of this cycle, which is return or integration, where again mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. And there's a sense of wholeness in us and in the world with its joys and sorrows. For when we have touched our own fear and ambition and sorrow and aloneness and hopes and joy and emptiness and death, when we've touched all of these and learned to allow the heart to open in the face of everything that comes and goes, there arises a fearlessness and a joy And we become in some ways a wise woman or a wise man, a healer, a bodhisattva, one who has journeyed through the realms and now can bring compassion back to the earth. And it's such an amazing thing that we journey through. I like to read this poem on retreats that someone gave me because it's such a reminder of where we come from. It's called reverse living. Life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time, all your weekends. And what do you get at the end of it? Death, a great reward. I think that the life cycle's all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. Then you live 20 years in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch, you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You go to college. You party until you're ready for high school. (laughs) You become a little kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little boy or girl. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating. And you finish off as a gleam in someone's eye. There's something about coming to the bottom of this, to coming to that essence of spiritual life, to that original, timeless wholeness, to that innocence that we were born with. And then we return and enter the world again, but somehow changed. I go to the marketplace with my wine bottle and return home with my staff. I visit the shops and the market and all whom I look upon become enlightened. This is the words of the Zen ox pictures. In the last picture, this happy kind of Zen priest going back into the marketplace. I see these retreats as a place to learn to live and a place to learn to die. And I don't see them really as very different. To live well is to die well to be present fully in life. And we follow this ancient path together, which is the path of presence and mindfulness and opening to what is, all of it, the joys and the sorrows, without turning away. Just as if monks, one who was faring through the forest through the great woods should see an ancient path said the buddha an ancient road traversed by people of former days even so have i seen an ancient path an ancient road traversed by the rightly enlightened ones of former times and it's to this possibility that we are invited to the sure heart's release, and with a little passage from the Tao Te Ching, the Tao has just three things to teach: simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in action and thought, you return to the source of your being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile with all things in the world. Let's sit, please, just for a minute. beautiful thing to share this process of opening that the retreat space provides to share it together with you with so many people. It's really wonderful. So I thank you and encourage you to really give yourself to this process.